all the way at the end of Romans. Romans does have 16 chapters, even though a lot of times we stop at 12. Romans has 16. Um, and it's kind of weird to come in and start at Romans 16.20, literally like seven verses before the end of the book, and be like, we don't, we're not even going through Romans right now, so why are you doing this to us? And so I'm going to do a brief overview, a brief look at the book of Romans and why Paul ends the way he does, which we'll get into um, is our, our main uh, kind of main verse for today. And so Romans, you know, is one of the kind of Paul's grand epistle. It's, it's, it's so much depth in it, so much good theology, so much history in it. And it's really what, what people go to to think of what is good Pauline theology. Is you, you go right to Romans. And he starts off really with this, this idea in mind, this mission of I'm not just going to preach good news to the Jews, but, but also for the Greeks. His idea of what Jesus has done is, is missional. It's, it's others-focused. It's not just for the Jew, but for the Greeks. And he says that in the opening chapter. First for the Jew, and also for the Greek. And he goes on to explain what, what faith is. is. Is faith just this covenant that God established with his people long ago? Um, is, is, or is God, are God's people just with those who established a covenant with him long ago? Or is it something more? And he goes in to highlight who Abraham is. And well, Abraham had righteousness not because of the, the ethnicity he was a part of, but rather because of faith. He believed by faith, and that was, a, that was accredited to him as righteousness. And he's establishing his point here. He's trying to say it's not who you were born, what family you were born into. It's the faith, the quality of the faith, the object of the faith, which is God. And then Paul goes on through Romans to talk about Adam, and he's establishing even further. Okay, we're going to go back to Adam. We had an old Adam, and that Adam failed, but now we have a new Adam who is Jesus, and he's carrying us through the promise, and he's carrying us in a way where the former Adam was supposed to, but failed. The new Adam, Jesus, will take us there. And then he goes into saying how we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And what does life in the Spirit look like? And then he goes back to say that Gentiles, the Greeks, are grafted into this new family. And he, so this, this, this idea of Paul reaching the nations and being a, 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 an apostle for the Gentiles, he's grafting the people of God or the Gentiles, into the people of God to form a new people. And then he continues on. He has some sharp words for Israel, but don't worry. They're his, they're his chosen people, and they'll come back. And then, uh, and then you've got a lot of instruction and stuff. But anyway, o- overall, I want to focus on is that Romans is a book that is focusing on Paul's mission to others. It's his mission to others He's preaching to Jews, Jews that believe in Jesus, but he's also saying, hey guys, it's not just for you, it's also for others. And so as the book of Romans comes to an end, hold on, I'm on the wrong page here. As the book of Romans comes to an end, Paul ends with some final greetings for his audience, for the leadership uh, at the church in Rome. And we get to these greetings typically and we, we, we tend to skip over them. We tend to see a bunch of names and yada, yada. He said, okay, you're saying the same thing over and over again in all your letters. We, know, we don't know any of these people, so it has no significance for us. But if we do that with Romans 16, 
we, we really miss a gem, and particularly that gem being 1620, which is our text for this morning. And not only do I think Romans 1620 is the, the summary verse of all the book of Romans, I think Romans 1620 is one of the most concise summaries of the entire biblical story. Why is that? Because it tells us who God is, what he's done, what he's about to do, and through whom he will accomplish his purposes. Paul is on mission to plant churches and equip believers and proclaim the risen Jesus in all aspects of his life to the ends of the earth. Jesus' life, his ministry, and death have inaugurated something truly revolutionary in this world, truly revolutionary. The kingdom of God is at hand, and the keys to this new kingdom is not status, it's not power, it's not knowledge, it's not strength, it's not wealth, but it's faith. Trusting in God and his promises, confidence in the person of Jesus. Paul's mission is to proclaim these new truths, these these revolutionary truths and enliven the churches and his readers in light of these new realities because the new kingdom reality is currently at hand. It's not just going to be at hand when Jesus returns. It's currently at hand now by faith. And that is what Paul so impassioned himself. I mean, we, we forget he's writing this from prison. He's writing this from prison and he's confident. I don't know about you, but if I'm in prison, I'm not confident about anything. I'm stuck in a cell. He's writing this from prison, and he scoffs at the world's rulers. And he writes this with such confidence, saying the new, new kingdom's at hand. The realities you, you once knew are no longer in power. The new kingdom's in power. And this is what Paul wants to get into the mind of his readers. This is God's mission. This is Paul's mission. And now, church, this is our mission as well. And we often talk about the word mission just being um, internationally focused. But I think that's, that's, that's a misnomer. Mission is simply bringing the truths of God to the world, to others. It's being a blessing to all the nations, as Abraham was called in Genesis 22. It's being a light to the nations, as it says in Isaiah 49, or as Acts chapter 1 puts it, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If we only have this idea that missions is internationally focused, then we simply can say, well, you know, that's, that's just not for me. I'm not, I'm not into missions. I know tons of friends that have that passion. They have that goal. That, that's for them. For me, I've got a family. I've got a job. I'm established. I can't, I can't be doing all that stuff. And if we have the mentality, then, then we are just stunting the kind of work that God wants us to do. Being missional just means being intentional about our faith and how it impacts others. Just as Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's missional. And I love that you guys call your community group gatherings missional communities because that's exactly what they are. You're being intentional about gathering for a purpose, for each other's sake, and for the sake of the world. And I love, uh, love the way you guys um, phrase that. So mission <coughs> is at the heart of what Paul's message here in Romans is. And frankly, it's at the heart of the entire New Testament. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus, and now by the Spirit, we slap it into our present reality. 
The kingdom that seems so distant is here, and we can taste it by faith. And this, this mission is not just a call for, for us today. It's for, it's for all human. This is human's purpose. We were created in the image of God. We are creatures who reflect God by the way that we live and speak. And this is what an image does. God's original intention for humanity has come to fruition for th- in those who believe in Jesus and follow in his footsteps. And that's why the New Testament calls us a new creation. We are a new creation with renewed vision, purpose, and ability to carry out what Adam could not, going back to Romans 5, which, which Paul establishes. Adam could not carry these things out. Adam failed, but Jesus has succeeded. Adam was supposed to steward the garden and have dominion over the land. But sin got in the way. Sin prevented Adam from his mission. But now that sin has been dealt with once and for all, we now can have dominion once again. We can co-rule with Jesus as a new creation by faith. Sin's defeat on the cross is just the beginning of our story, not the end. It's the beginning of our mission. And this is why Paul is so fired up as he concludes this letter here to the church in Rome, because we have dominion once again. Paul knows that through Jesus we have forgiveness of sins, which means we're ready for battle. We have forgiveness of sins so nothing can tie us down no longer hindered by the claws of sin sinking deep within us, we can now hear God again through his spirit. And so we get to Romans 16, the end, and this is what he says. I'll read, um, starting in verse 17, for a little bit of context. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites and smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In these verses here, Paul lays out this heavy encouragement to the church that their obedience is known to all. Their obedience is known to all. Paul says this in in his other letters too. He said it several times in Romans as well. He loves reminding people that, hey, the work you're doing on a day-to-day basis is not just for you. It's not just for your family. It's known to all. Your faithfulness reaches far beyond what you can possibly know. These people have exemplified what it means to follow Jesus to more people than than just in front of them. And this obviously causes Paul to rejoice. He is rejoicing with them, sitting in prison, rejoicing as he hears stories about what they've done. But they need to endure. They can't get complacent. They need to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil because Paul knows the trickery and deceitfulness of sin. Hang on! Paul says, because God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the God 
And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice what the text does not say. It does not say the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Jesus' feet. And trust me, Paul is not saying anything negative about Jesus. Paul knows Jesus dealt with sin and Satan once for all. Paul boasts about knowing nothing except Christ and him crucified. So what is he doing here? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your, you, plural, Paul is linking this new creation reality as co-rulers with Jesus to us. He is reminding us of our mission. He is encouraging us to know that Jesus Christ crucified means that death and sin had lost their sting. So go, get out there. Nothing's holding you back now. Have dominion once again, as you were supposed to in the beginning. God's mission doesn't include us waiting on the sidelines, but rather it emboldens us to be on the front lines because you have the Spirit of God working in you, renewing your heart and mind and mission. He wants his body to be a body. He wants his body to participate because we are the new creation. You are a prince and a princess. You are a king and a queen. And he's called you to participate in this new kingdom promise. See, God wants to share his work with us. Remember, that's how it was from the get-go with Adam and Eve. He, he wanted to share with them. He wanted them to have dominion. He wanted them to rule and take care of his creation. So if that's true of Adam... Wouldn't that be true of Jesus and those who are adopted into his family by faith? God shares his rule with us. He shares his authority with us. We are co-heirs, as Paul says in Romans 8 earlier. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... There's always a provider. There's always a but. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him, as it says in 2 Timothy. If we suffer with him, we will also crush Satan under our feet with him. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. This is what it says of, of the serpent. Uh, and his curse after uh, he deceived Adam and Eve. <clears throat> it says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is often referred to as the proto-euangelion, which is the first instance of the gospel. It's, it's the first promise of hope after Adam and Eve fell into sin and spiraled all of humanity into hopelessness, except for Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, this first hope. Genesis 3, the offspring of the woman, namely Jesus, crushes the head of the serpent. 
But see, what Paul is doing here in Romans 16.20, because this verse directly parallels Genesis 3.15, is instead of reiterating Genesis 3, he's actually taking the work of Jesus and applying it to us. He's taking the work of Jesus and saying, God's promise in Genesis 3, yeah, Jesus did the actual head crushing on the cross, but guess what? By faith, we get to also participate in that crushing. God doing so under our feet. Our feet, your feet. But why our feet? What's significant about feet? Why is God crushing Satan under our feet? Why not our hands? Why not smash him in our palms? Why not skewer him with a sword? All those things sound much cooler, to be honest. They sound, they sound much cooler. Uh, I don't know about you guys. So when we, um, I don't know if, what you know about us, I should say, but we recently got a house back in May. We, finally, we, we found a house, before all the craziness, by the way. Lord's, Lord's good there. Um, but we found a house, and before you close on a house, you do something called a final walkthrough. Before you sit down and you sign 643 pages of, of documents, you do a final walkthrough of the house, and you inspect it. You make sure everything is good. You walk through uh, the kitchen and the bedrooms and the bathrooms, and you look and you make sure everything is good to go. You want to make sure you know what's going on there because it's about to be your new territory. It's about to be your domain. It's where you will have dominion. Your final walkthrough is the defining moment that says you're ready to make this house that wasn't yours, yours. And under your feet, you're kind of, you're recreating the significance of this house. It's no longer what it used to be. There's a new intentionality with this house because it's now my house. Significance of crushing Satan under our feet is claiming that this is our territory now. This is new creation. You no longer have dominion. You don't run things here anymore. And all throughout Scripture as a whole, this is how the biblical writers use feet. And even in non-biblical writing, this is how feet were seen in the ancient world. In the ancient Near East, you have, you have artwork of Pharaoh treading on his enemies as he defeated them. You have um, just stories of, 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 and images of feet uh, being linked to, to conquering and, and dominion and control. And this is how Scripture highlights feet, too. In, in, in Joshua chapter 1, it says that every place that the sole of your foot treads on, I have given to you, says the Lord. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he walks on water underfoot to say, water, I even have dominion and control over you, which the seas were seen as ferocious and untamable. Not like we see water today. Back then, it was, it was scary. Water was much scarier back then than it is today. Psalm 8 says, You have given him, speaking of Jesus, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalm 110, speaking of Jesus, says, You have made his enemies a footstool for his feet. And elsewhere in Paul's writing, Ephesians 6, he says, it says, By the Spirit, we've been given shoes for our feet that bring readiness empowered by the gospel of peace. And as we just look at Romans, there's this beautiful narrative arc that talks about feet. In Romans 3, 15, quoting from Isaiah 59, it says, Their feet are quick to shed blood. 
Romans 10.15 says, also quoting from Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet who preach good news. And then climaxing with our verse here today in Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And all these are just some, some samples. But biblically, feet and walking are all, over, all, are all over the place. And they symbolize ruling. They symbolize having dominion. And isn't it interesting that in Genesis 3, the curse of the serpent is actually to remove his feet. And he lays on his belly. He no longer has dominion anymore. His deceitfulness and dishonestness has brought about a stripping of dominion. And then soon, soon, mankind would have dominion again by faith. And so what Paul is doing here is taking the rule of Jesus as the serpent crusher, and he's attributing co-rulership to his church, which is why I think Jesus, as he begins, or in, in the Gospels, washes the feet of the disciples. First of all, they were nasty. But second of all, symbolically, he's preparing them for service. He's preparing them for mission. Their sin has been dealt with. Their feet have been washed. So now it's go time. Reclaim your dominion once again. Proclaim the new kingdom and that it's come. Paul commends the Roman church for their faith and their obedience. He encourages them to be wise. He encourages them to persevere and endure because every time they live in accordance with the gospel, they are crushing Satan under their feet. And, and that's their purpose. That's their mission. That's why he lists all the people at the end of his letters because they're real people doing real work, having real impact in the lives of their church and their larger community. He wants to tell the Roman church. He wants to tell Prisca and Achilla. He wants to tell Andronicus and Junia. He wants to tell Rufus and his mom, who was like a mom to Paul. He wants to tell Tryphena and Tryphosa. And he even wants to tell Phlegin. Yeah, Phlegin. <laughs> that your work not only matters, but it is vital. It is necessary. And Paul wants to tell Christ the King Church this morning that all of you matter. Your faith and your faithfulness matters. You are significant to the mission of Christ. You are indispensable in Augusta, Georgia, and the larger CSRA. You are necessary. God has brought you here in this time and place on purpose, for a purpose, and he's called you to bask in the light of this new creation reality where faith and obedience are like oxygen or like a nice glass of ice-cold water on a hot Augusta day. Why? Why be faithful and obedient? Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, church. You see, God works through his people, faithful, enduring people. God brings things to pass through you. He brings things to pass through you, his people. You are his vessels. You are his agents. You are his images. And God is doing the work, but it's under your feet that the deeds of darkness get crushed. And I would even go as so far uh, to say this. If God's people are not present and obedient, God will not work. If you are not present, God will not work. Not because he can't, not because God can't work, not because he's impotent, but because he's chosen to reveal himself through you. You are his image. 
He's done that most notably in the, per- in the person of Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the Father. But you, being co-heirs, he's chosen to use you to do his work. He wants to share. Again, he wants to share his dominion with his image bearers. The God of the Bible is not like the God of other religions. He shares with his people. He doesn't hold it over. He doesn't hold rule over with an iron fist. He shares his glory with his people, and he wants to share dominion with his image bearers, with his followers. It's like a father who wants his child to score the game-winning shot. I can hit that three, clearly, but I want you to do it. I want you to score the game-winning shot. That's God's relationship with us. It's a father-son-daughter relationship. He doesn't want to just do everything while we sit in the silence. He wants us to participate. That's our role in this age as God's image, representing him to our city where we are present. And if we are not present, he is not either. That's why in Romans 10, 15, earlier in this book, the feet of those who preach good news are beautiful. Why? Because they bring that good news to people who have not heard it yet. They are necessary. It's beautiful because without them bringing good news, people wouldn't hear. Their presence matters, and yours does too. And it's not just your presence that matters, but the manner in which you are present as well. I love how this verse, Romans 16.20, opens up. It says, the God of peace will soon crush. The God of peace will crush. Those are two words you don't often see together. Peace and crush. How does the God of peace crush? Is it through militaristic dominance and might? Nope. Is it through fear and oppression? God doesn't crush in ways familiar with us in this world. God crushes through sacrifice. God crushes through service. God crushes through compassion. God crushes by bringing peace. All these things crush Satan because they are totally antithetical to who he is. But what crushes Satan revives us. What may crush him is actually what brings us life And so the way that we crush Satan is not by outsmarting him. It's not by overpowering him with our strength, but it's by loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's by turning the other cheek. It's by being generous with our time and our money. It's by confessing our sins to one another. It's by extending forgiveness to one another. It's by prioritizing gentleness, by having a rich and vibrant prayer life, by singing our heart out to the Lord, by going on date nights with our spouse, by playing with our kids and developing a deep relationship with them, by serving the poor and serving the orphan and the widow and the divorced and the single and the marginalized. It's by loving people who are different than us, who think differently or maybe look differently, especially in the age we're in now. Our goal is to seek to understand and truly love people. And listen, if you're having a hard time figuring out how you can crush Satan under your feet practically, all you have to do is think about what will make your name great and mighty and just do the opposite. That's all. 
We crush Satan our feet by living within the parameters of this new kingdom, by being faithful and obedient to our calling. In his kingdom, the norms look very different than the world around us. So it's, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do these things because every day we are in a battle. It's not easy to persevere. It's hard. It's difficult. And that's why we need prayer. We need one another. We need accountability. We need the church to come around and rally together because that's how we, we, we crush. He's not saying you individually, but you collectively. Soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, church. We, we are people easy to forget and not remember because the world around us bombards us with its own messaging, its own gospel, so much that if we are not doing this faith thing every day, if we are not following in the footsteps of Jesus every day, whether it's through reading or praying or gathering together, we will forget. We will fall away. So we need to be doing this every day, gathering, praying, reading, encouraging, challenging, rebuking, admonishing, loving, forgiving. And if we do so, God promises that Satan will be crushed under our feet. But Paul's not worried about that. Paul is sure of better things for us. Because although God has given us this responsibility, he doesn't leave us alone in this responsibility. As he says in Philippians 2, he works, God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because ultimately, the God of peace once and for all crushed Satan on the cross. It is through the cross that all of this peace can be brought because it was there that Satan was truly defeated. We do have our role to play as new creation, living in an old creation world. But we only have that role because what was given to us in Jesus. So we need to pray for strength, that God may strengthen us and equip us to persevere and endure, knowing full well of our calling, knowing full well that our endurance and perseverance is essential to his mission. It's necessary and critical. And let's do so knowing full well that we are inadequate for the task, but then smile and rejoice because we know that God uses inadequate people for his purposes. That's, that's just how he works. He did that with Abraham and David. He did that with Paul and Peter. And through Jesus, the exact imprint, he does so perfectly. And we need to believe this. Even if we are inadequate, even if we don't think it's possible, because Soon, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, it is, it is hard to, to take this responsibility and walk out in confidence because we know our own sin in our heart, whether it's public or private, we know that things hinder us. We don't truly believe that we have dominion over sin that we can crucify, that, we, that it no longer has to hold us down. And, and then we're right to think that we can't control and tame it if we just try and do it ourselves, Lord. But I pray that as we think about this responsibility to crush Satan under our feet, that you help us draw near to this church body here, 
draw near to you in faith, ask for forgiveness so that we can be emboldened to walk out in this world as inadequate as we are and participate in some serpent crushing. Lord, may we do so by faith, not in our own strength. We need your strength. But Lord, use our feet because it's our feet that you called to be used. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.